But I just like telling people stories, but also how we present them, the juxtaposition of the image and the and the headline and the and the stand first and the pull quotes and all of that. I just love that visual presentation of it. Meet Michael Taylor. Michael is a journalist who spent years working in the heart of the business world in Manchester. In the noughties, he was the editor of the Northwest Business Insider. I've known Michael for years, and it's been really interesting to see him evolve through different careers, including politics and academia. He ran as a Labour Party candidate in the local elections in 2015. He's also written an academic thesis on Manchester. Michael says he always knows when it's time to move on. But what about knowing when to go back? You'll hear about that and more in this episode. So we recorded this interview a few weeks back and before it hit the news that Lawrence Jones, the well-known UK fast businessman, was jailed for rape and sexual assault. And that's a story that's been rumbling for a long time now. We don't comment on that story in this interview, but the theme of misogyny in business runs through this conversation. Michael ran a piece in Business Desk that resonated with hundreds of people. And reading some of those comments really did trigger me. I share some of my own experiences um, throughout my business career. And whilst it's true that things have changed, clearly they're still so very far to go. I know from my work with Greater Manchester and Manchester City Council and the business community that I know today that things are very, very different. I believe that everybody has a right to go into their working environment and be respected no matter their background, their age, their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnic background. And for many years, when I started my career, that absolutely was not the case. So we still need to call out the behavior. We still need to have those tough conversations. We need to never be complacent. And I hope very much so that in 10 years time, when people possibly listen to these episodes of We Built The City, that the environment that we talk about in this interview is something that people literally can't imagine ever happened. Time to hear Michael's story now. I'm Lisa Morton. And this is We Built This City. Michael, welcome to We Built This City. Oh, Lisa, thanks for asking me on. <laughs> so we've known each other for a very long time. So I met you not long after you moved to Manchester in 2000. Yeah. And as it happened, our sons, so your Joe and my Alex, were born just a few weeks That's apart, right. weren't yeah, they? Yeah. So I seem to remember back in the day spending a lot of time with you in bouncy castle places and like kids' <laughs> ballparks and stuff like that. Yes. So, do you remember getting invited to a family fun day at Chester Zoo? I do. You've forgotten about yes. that. Yeah, I do. And remember. the invitation had name and then name of wife. <laughs> Which was such an allegory for the times, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Said it all. I don't know what I put down then. <laughs> <laughs> I remember who invited us as well, but it was a great day. Yes. Um, so you're an adopted Manc, born oh, wow. in Lancashire. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a bit about growing up as a young man. Yeah, so I grew up in Lancaster and I came to university in Manchester in 1985. And when you're growing up in Lancaster, you know, we didn't have a football team. We had a really great music scene. The music's always been a really important part of my life. But you either gravitated, depending on your football allegiances or um, or your cultural leanings, towards Liverpool or Manchester, if you were kind of looking further afield. 
and and I very much lean towards Manchester to go, you know, shopping every, you know, every six months or so, you know, go to Manchester. You know, you come back with a bit of a manky accent or <laughs> a bit like Kevin and Perry, you know, or, <laughs> with a bit of the swagger. And although I'm not a City or United fan, I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan, but I was definitely more mank inclined. And then I applied to go to university, and it's one of those sliding doors moments that... Actually, I went to the interviews. Manchester, I think, was third on my list after Nottingham and Birmingham. There, you know, that's where you went, mm, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, I really, I really, I got the impression that Manchester really liked me. I liked going down there. I was more familiar with it. I knew my way around a little bit more than the other cities. So, you know, maybe that's that caution which has always run through my life of going for my comfort zones. But they seemed to like me at the University of Manchester, and they made me a really low ball offer, which was just like the worst thing they could have done. Which means that <laughs> I didn't get me straight A's. From Morecambe College. Instead, I got uh, I got enough to get into Manchester. What do you do? What are you studying? Sociology. Right. So, what was Manchester like when you're at uni here? What was yeah, it's brilliant. On? Yeah, it was brilliant. And the the great thing was, I made loads of mates with people who were from Manchester. So we kind of got access to a a social scene and a club scene and and, and a network of friends and stuff. Who um you know with with links either into Altrincham or Middleton Oldham. So I just got to know loads of people that. You know, probably wasn't the Fallowfield student experience that a lot of other people right. will fly in and out of. I never lived in Hume, by the way. Where did you live? Upper Brook Street. Oh. Yeah, number two hundred and forty-five. And and the reason I still remember that is because we've still got a WhatsApp group for the Have you? for the for the for the lads that I lived with. Yeah, we're all still really close friends. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And what was going on in in town in those days? What was the like club scene, socialising? My favourite club was the venue. Yeah, on on Whitworth Street, mm. yeah. Um, we loved the Hacienda. We went a lot. You know, we spent a lot of time in the queue outside. Uh, I like the gallery, Man Alive Club on the top of Upper Brook Street by the mm. corner of Grosvenor, where where my halls were in the first year. That was a quite an edgy club as well. I saw James at the Town Hall. Really? Yeah, that was a, a sit down gig. When they, 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 they <laughs> literally just got, yeah, everyone was sat down literally. Yeah, that was what Tim Booth wanted everyone to do. And I guess one of the other things is um, my auntie lived in Crumpsall, um, lives in Mobley now, and she was a PA for the producer of Coronation Street. And so we kind of, I'd go for lunch with her and at Granada. <laughs> so I was kind of caught up with the buzz of the whole yeah. media thing here as well. And uh, I used to read City Life every week and see this name in the magazine of this cool dude, you know, around town called Andrew Spinoza. Yeah. I thought, oh, he sounds cool. <laughs> you know, now he's one of my best mates. <laughs> I saw him last night, actually. Hey. He's a, yeah, great guy. So what drew you to London and did you always think you were going to be a journalist? What was the plan? Yeah, well, I uh, I went to Australia. So I didn't go to, I didn't, that wasn't a straight line from Manchester to London. All my mates did. They took 245 Upper Brook Street to a shared house in Stoke Newington. And then instead of denim jackets and rolled up jeans and dot mines it was all neck suits and jobs in the city and I I didn't really want to do that that wasn't me and I wanted to work in the media I've been working for Mancunian the student newspaper I used to write for that fairly prolifically um, alongside a load of people who've gone on to build great careers in the media over the years and um, so I, you know I put my backpack on and went to Thailand and then landed in the west coast of Australia in Perth and there I, I really I felt at home I knocked on the door of a music magazine in the city called Express. The editor seemed to like me, took a shine to me, gave me a few jobs to do. He went, you're from Manchester, aren't you? I went, yeah, of course I am. He said, oh, this is where it's all but house music and dance music. And it was the 
beginnings of it. So it's just time and a place. So I made a name for myself, effectively chronicling a music scene. So there were DJs, all my mates were involved in that scene. One of them went to five years in prison as a result of his involvement in that <laughs> scene, but we won't go there. Um, and I felt really involved and in touch and uh, I made great friends. And then one of them asked me if I wanted to be involved in the launch of another magazine off the back of it. And I just think compressed into that 12 months of living in a city on the other side of the world. You know, I've never forgotten the friendships I made, the welcome I got. And I thought, oh, this is what life's like in the big, bad, real world. Yeah. And then I came back to London. I could have gone back to Australia and gone and done a postgrad journalism course at uh, UWA in, in Perth, but I didn't. I got a traineeship at EMAP, which is business publishers in London. I wasn't really happy doing that to start with, but I look back now and actually it was an epiphany because a lot of the sort of stories I've been writing about in the music press in Australia, you know, you get 15 minutes with a band no one's ever heard of. But when I started work on this tech magazine in London. You're getting your phone calls returned by the IT director of Johnson & Johnson or, H or Midland Bank as it was then. And suddenly you've got access to power and influence and you're thinking, well, actually, this business journalism lock ain't too bad. But it was really about finding, finding an industry that was a, a bit, I was a bit more comfortable in than IT. Why was being a journalist so important to you? It holds responsibility, so how do you... I think I just like, like telling stories. I like... Um, Listening to people, using your your ears and your mouth in the direct proportion, um, listening to people's stories, relaying them, but also how we present them. You know, I even look back at the early magazines that I did, either football fanzines or or Image magazine in Australia, and the the juxtaposition of the image and the and the headline and the and the stand first and the pull quotes and all of that. I just love that visual presentation of it. It's much more difficult now working in a digital environment. But I just like telling people stories and presenting them. Mm. And so when you came back to Manchester in 2000, that was to edit Northwest Business Insider, which yes. was definitely, was probably the only um, business publication. It was the Bible for certainly for well, corporate. We had um, cheeky competitors. They were at the time we did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I had a really interesting and spiky relationship with the editor of a rival magazine who had been a predecessor at Insider, God rest his soul, a guy called Martin Regan. Mm -hmm. And we ended up sort of becoming a bit closer um, after I was leaving and I was on my tortuous 12 months notice period. We used to meet up and go for a walk <laughs> and kind of just think, what was that feud all about? <laughs> that was the EN magazine, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, uh, and, he, and Martin sadly died, and I found myself feeling like profoundly sad about that because I thought, here's a kindred spirit, here's someone. We had this ridiculous feud that went on. He used to refer to me as the insipid Blairite who edits uh, Property Magazine Insider. <laughs> <laughs> that's Martin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, that's interesting because there was another pretender that came into the market, which is called Cranus, yeah. which really kind of rocked the boat, didn't it? And that was an, was that an American... Yeah, and that was another predecessor to, to me at Insider, Steve Browner, who was, uh, yeah. who was the editor of that. But, yeah, Cranus I mean, was quite pugnacious. I think they... Yeah. Uh, I think they went too far, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. I don't think they, I don't think business people felt that they were on their side. It was sort of starting from the presumption that business people are at it, that they're all trying to hide something. I didn't. I came from a perspective of we're in favour of the region. I think it's important that 
any media at the heart of any community, be it a local place or a business community or a trade sector or whatever, polices the boundaries of that community. I'm all in favour of that, but I think they went too far. I don't think they had empathy with the business community, mm. which is, I think, ultimately why they weren't commercially supported. And that's what you have to do. You have to perform a dance. And I'm sure there's lots of people who think that, you know, I sailed too close to the sun at some point then. And I was too cosy with advertisers, but you know, in our, in in its heyday, it was a it was a great time to be around. Yeah, I've got some back copies that are kind of you find in the odd box here and there that I've kept. And you know, it's interesting to see how many people have actually continued on that journey. You do forty two under forty two, and um, you've done that for years. And people have continued to make waves and 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 create influence in in the city region, haven't they? Yeah, I've looked back at a few issues as well, and I must admit, I audibly wince. At, um, at some of the presentation, particularly not not the design of it. I think I think uh, we, we made strides. It was a journey, but the events that I used to do, the manuals, all male panels, you know. Oh, uh, listen, that's uh, yeah, lads, lads, property events. Yeah, you know, where I'd literally sit down with a sponsor and they're going, "Yeah, we want to get all the boys from Thingy to come along, and you know, all the, get all those lads, get the Halliwell's lads over, and you think." That's the thing, isn't it? You go back to that decade, the first decade of the 2000s in business reporting and there was still a lot of misogyny oh. at that time. You know, I look back as a woman in business, what we had to battle with, there was zero diversity. Yeah. And, but we just had to, uh, we had to deal with that. And I remember, and you remember too, is, you know, I paid probably £5,000 to go and hand an award out at a dealmaker's dinner in front of mainly middle-class, middle-aged white blokes and was sexually harassed by the MC on stage and, and who is also on our TV screens on a regular basis now. Um, and I won't say the audience howled laughing. I think people were quite surprised, but nonetheless, there was nothing done about that. I had to deal with that as I could on the stage and I mean obviously it would never happen now no it's outrageous but, was, but that was not uncommon to have situations yeah. like that back in and you know probably mid to late 2000s well no you are right it's your experience it's your lived experience which you've shared and it's it's something I'm profoundly ashamed of that happened on my watch that um, in any way that I was complicit with that and didn't hold those people to account and it is people it's not just one isolated incident but it's also the presentation of women you know we I, I think I was on a journey over that period and I think by the certainly now I've not run since I left that job I've not done an all-male panel I personally never behaved in the way that you described I think I can scrutinize my own behavior in all of that time where I always sought to be inclusive and encouraging of of women and, and people from different ethnic backgrounds. You know, that's in my makeup, that's my politics, that's my commitment. But sometimes not having the courage to stand up for it, um, maybe that's what I've been guilty of mm. at times. Mm. Thank you for saying that, actually, because nobody stood up for me at that time and I didn't get my money back, which I'm still hacked off about now. <laughs> but You're having said right that, Greater Manchester is an incredible, rich business community, but... We do a lot of work. We've done a lot of work with the City Council. You've been involved in that our year 2022 where we're trying to put young people at the heart of what we do because we've seen this in business all the time. The experience or the work experience and the opportunities come to the nephew of 
John in finance or, you know what I mean? So you, we're still seeing the same people. I took a wonderful new team member who'd only been with us for a few weeks. I took her to the property awards and it's 25 years of the property awards. And, you know, I'm aware of the lack of diversity in that room, but her chin was on a chest and she said to me, have you seen this room? She said, the only people of ethnicity are the people who are serving our food. Yeah. With the exception of one team, which I will give a, a shout out for, CMS lawyers, they had a, a completely diverse team. There was no diversity anywhere else. So last night, the, I work for the business desk now. Yeah. I'm the editor of the business desk in the Northwest. We had our Business of the Year Awards, CMS, you've just reminded me. Uh, Geraldine, who's a mutual friend mm -hmm. of ours, was, um, was present and correct as a sponsor of that awards. And I looked around the room la last night and I thought, my, my, what a journey, what a change much more diverse room, much more comfortable, mm. and celebrating people's achievements. That's what an event like that should be. And and that kind of warmth in the room. Our guest speaker was Lou Cordwell, who just did such a, you know, it wasn't a lecture about, the you know, the, the kind of strategy, the Manchester Business Board. She touched on it. You know, it, it's about building a better environment for building businesses and congratulating everybody on the on the risks that they've taken to get them into the room mm. and also getting those businesses to think about how they can change the legacies that yeah. they're creating by bringing other people who don't have that opportunity necessarily absolutely into the businesses let's just talk about relationships because your career has been built on that my career has so what's your view on how you create great relationships that can make that magic happen it's by behaviors isn't it people don't trust you and think that they have a relationship if you don't do a bit of give and take you don't pay it forward occasionally you give do people favors um do what you say you're gonna do uh, come across as trustworthy honest loyal kind all the kind of um attributes i think i like to my kind of non-negotiable behaviours. And if people see that you behave in an authentic and a trusting way, they'll come back and they'll do you favours and they'll they'll give you the time of day and they'll and opportunities will present themselves. Mm. Like it's... coming on this podcast. <laughs> Finally. Um who in your lifetime or your career have been important to you? Who would you say that's really supported you or been a mentor or been there for yeah, you when yeah. you've had a tough time? Yeah, well my bit my biggest mentor and my best friend is my wife, Rachel. Um, we've got an incredibly strong relationship. We, uh, she supports me in, in everything that I do, um, picks me up at the lows, um, supports me at the highs, and and I couldn't have done anything that I've done in my life, raising our uh, our blended family together. Um, obviously, the the, the the center of all of that, but also what we've done in our careers as well, and the, and, the, and the journey she's been on as well. You know, she we, we worked together. And then she went into study it and got a degree, retrained as a teacher, something she never had the opportunity to do when she was younger. And, you know, I saw the transformative potential and the standards that were far higher for her getting doing a degree than when I did, it seemed. Um, my God, education's wasted on the young, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, retrained as a teacher, was an amazing teacher. And now she, she's left that world behind, transitioned again, and he's head of fundraising for Caritas, the the social action arm of the Catholic Church. Incredible. Amazing work. So that, that's really a tribute. Important work, yeah. You've had a couple of forays away from yeah. journalism, but in, in really key roles. How do you compare 
what you were doing then to what you come back to? I keep getting my head turned by doing other things. I needed to leave Insider in 2012. I'd reached the end of the road. I think my the, many of my relationships there were completely broken and uh, I needed to just move on and do something different. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't really even have the capacity to be a school governor. Do you know what I mean? Something that in my heart I, I would, would preach and I would interview people and say what a legend they are because they give so much back to the community and yet I didn't have the capacity to be able to do it myself in a really, really all-consuming job. So I just needed the time and space to do different things. There was two books that I wanted to to, to publish and write and get, get off the blocks, which I did. I wanted to get into politics because, again, I don't think journalism is necessarily compatible with politics and I ripped up my Labour Party card in after I'd arrived at Insider because my constituency was the business community of the Northwest, who was interests I was there to defend, promote, and advocate on behalf of. But, you know, it's a long story, but in May 2015, for that election, I was Labour's candidate in my home constituency of Hazel Grove, which was yeah. an incredible experience. Yeah. One, I don't regret, even though I knew, I knew I'd be on a hide into nothing, but I made the calculation when the previous candidate dropped out in a typically Stockport row about something nobody really remembers what it was about at the time. And I thought, right, I've got back involved in the party. I turned up to my first meeting and thought, oh, I'll sit at the back and work out how everyone, who everyone is. There was no back of the room. You're like <laughs> eight, eight people around a table. <laughs> and so, you know, three meetings on, I'm, I'm local government liaison officer of the local Labour Party and they're saying, oh, would you like to be a candidate in the elections? It's like in the council election. And then when the opportunity came up to select a parliamentary candidate, the process kicked in and I went, hold on a minute, now I'm really involved. I'm going to spend the general election campaign driving Toby or Ollie from London around while he earns his spurs. And that was what was on the cards. You know, they were the kind of interest we were getting from blue-suited special advisors from from London or I'll do it and get to know it and have a strategy and think about how we rebuild the party in you know the kind of places where Labour should be represented and there, were, there should have been an opportunity and I'm, abs I'm actually quite flattered that we did so well we increased by 50% Labour's vote which I was really pleased with we came third still there was a prospect that we could have finished fourth because UKIP were rising the Greens took a thousand votes out of the market so I was really pleased about what we did and it kind of made my, it raised my profile in another, in another world. It opened up lots of other opportunities. The main one being <laughs> meeting Peter Mandelson. <laughs> so my phone rings one day from a number I didn't recognise. I put it onto answer phone thinking it's someone complaining about dog mess in Bradbury. <laughs> and I'm sat in the car with a mate of mine and I play it back and I'm like, I nearly fell out of the car. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and Peter wanted a favour for something he wanted to do in Manchester. And, uh, and we became quite good mates. <laughs> it came against all probabilities. What was the favour? He wanted to stand to be the Chancellor for the University of Manchester. Oh, right. And it's an elected position. Right. So you had to stand for an election. So me and a mate of mine called Steve Connor and a guy called Nick Bent, who runs the Tutor Trust, and Abigail Shapiro, who run, runs that with Nick, we were his campaign team to become the Chancellor of the University of Manchester. And he lost to Lem Cissé, yeah. quite rightly. Yeah. I think Lem was a far better choice. You really enjoyed uh, your time at MU, didn't you? Some of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which bits did you enjoy? Uh, well, the reason, you know, I wanted to leave in the end. I felt I 
sort of buried myself in the bowels of a bureaucracy. Um, when I started, Malcolm Press, the vice chancellor, really needed my help to kind of embed himself in the city. Hugely intelligent, hugely capable, really impressive, high-performing leader. He doesn't need someone carrying his bag and introducing him at every single meeting. After a while, that kind of role, it's, it's time limited mm. because, you know, he builds his own networks. So I then did a different role as head of regional affairs. I was just doing a lot of firefighting and then lockdown hit. I think the first lockdown was all a bit of a novelty and a laugh and the weather was good and we're at home and we're doing Zoom calls every day and we're trying to stay in touch. But in the end, I just didn't have enough to do. And what I, what I did have to do just wasn't particularly pleasant, you know? And, you know, I was the, I was the butt of a lot of anger from, um, from one of the community groups that I was advocating against their interests about the university selling some land. And I felt a little bit like I'd been hung out to dry a bit. But... Um, Part, part of me enjoyed the devilment of it as well, though, I have to say. And what happened after MMU? So I did take another job that didn't work out. Um, I went freelance. But then there's this really, really important moment that when I walked through the foyer of my gym, I remember it really profoundly, that I got a call at about that after I'd been at the gym one morning at about 7 o'clock. And it was from Julia Hatmaker at the Place Northwest. And Paul Unger, who's a great friend, uh, the, the publisher and editor, he said, we need to do a profile about Sir Richard Lee's retiring, and I know the person to do it. <laughs> and I was absolutely on the floor mm. at the time. Uh, and for someone to show that confidence mm. in, in what I could still do. Oh. It's always about journalism for you, isn't it? Because mm. the other thing I'd done at the time is... Um, I'd done a master's thesis at the university. Um, my my di direct line manager, Jean-Noël, had encouraged me to uh, to pursue academic study because I thought, yeah, maybe academia is right for me. It felt like a new, fresh environment. I was in and amongst good people who seemed to like what I was able to contribute. He told me in his beautiful French accent that I'd taken to academia like a duck to water. I'm not going to do <laughs> that. Go do it. Go no, no. <laughs> you have taken to it like a duck to no, water. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and he only encouraged me. So I, I wanted to write an academic thesis on what was happening in Manchester about devolution, about uh, the fact that the, the city region was electing a mayor. And it's eff effectively a piece of contemp ultra contemporary modern history about Andy Burnham's first term. And, and it was called Networks and Narratives. And it was really about how, how he was constructing all those networks, of which you're a, an important part. Uh, but I used loads of really colourful imagery, like, you know, when Andy Burnham strode in front of the t of the library to the microphone wearing a North Face jacket, they were like, no, you need to take that out. And I'm like, no, that's colour, <laughs> yeah. that's history, that's narrative, that's telling it. And it had to be marked externally from two academics, who I won't name either personally or the universities they were from. But one of the comments really st stung, and it was the same comment, which is why I didn't get a first in 1988, that it was journalistic. That it wasn't, you know, it was a tradition called interpretive political science that I was uh, sort of quite interested in, but it was so dense, you know, and the, the, the route that I got pushed down, I felt that uh, that was counter to who I really am, yeah? And then, you know, Paul and Julia are asking me to go and write some journalism. And, I'm, and I made a really conscious decision at that point that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into journalism. And it was a struggle. And then I got a call from someone who's now one of my dearest friends, Elise Wilson, who's the, who was the, at the time the leader of Stockport Council. And it's one of those beautiful Manchester moments. Um, I'd had a cup of tea with Howard Bernstein 
And he'd said, oh, I think, I think I know someone who might need your help. And a little bit of time elapsed and I get a call from Elise. And I didn't know her well. And again, it's that moment that someone believes in you and trusts you. And I went to see her and Rachel was saying to me, it's not journalism though, is it? And I went, I know, but it's Stockport. There's a lot of comms involved, there's a lot of politics involved. And we just hit the ground running. And I really, really enjoyed working with her. And, and it was a great nine months. And then as that was sort of coming towards its end, working in the uh, for the Labour group on the council, which had become the opposition, not my fault, um, I got a call from Lee J. Walker at the business desk. And he said, um, straight up, Shalina's leaving, we want to offer you a job. Didn't even hesitate. It's where I knew I needed to be. Absolutely. And do you like feel just at home in that, in, yeah, being a journalist again? And I look back on your career last 23 years or so and you've documented some of the biggest business stories of Greater Manchester and you've championed some of the biggest business successes mm -hmm. also uncovered some of the biggest business blaggers I suppose. Rogues, rogues, rogues and blaggers. Rogues, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, I, and I've ignored some of them as well. Have you? Yeah. Again that's another big responsibility in telling the, the stories the tales of Manchester so what um, reflections have you got on that? I mean obviously some amazing people who've created great legacy, employed lots of people and created, you know, a better um, economy for us and then some of those other ne'er-do-well. So can you tell us a little bit of both sides of, of the tracks there? Yeah, I always kind of get uh, attracted to characters. You know, I like people with a great story to tell. I think journalism's are actually about saying, not just recording what happened, it's also about explaining why it happened. I, I'm thinking, you know, we analyse data now because we can see how many people read our, our stories. People like stories about people doing new things, you know. They like stories about colourful personalities. Um, but also describing, you know, the environment and the scenario and the world that they're in. And I love doing that. I want to do more of that on the business desk. I want to you know, revive the, you know, the set piece sit-down interview. I love, I love doing those. I love doing events. I like, you know, seeing the whites of their eyes. We've got a series going on with a law firm called Field Fisher where we inter I interview people in front of an audience. I want to do more of those. Um, the bigger, the better, the more interesting and important people. So reflections, I've interviewed five, four people on stage who've had films made of their lives. Oh, good one. Right. Mm. Cass Pennant, who's a gangster, uh, used, used to be West Ham. He, he's been shot. He's got a film called Cass. Um, Frank Abagnale, who was the um, the blagger, who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can. Nick Leeson, who was played by Ewan McGregor in Rogue Trader. When did you and interview him? I did an event in London for Access Pay, an event at the Barbican. That was great fun. Before or after the banking crisis? Oh, way after. Yeah, yeah it was in about 2013. No, 2015, somewhere around that time anyway. And, of course, the late, great Anthony H. Wilson. Did a couple of events with Toe. <laughs> toe. <laughs> the reason for that, the Toe, was that because of that, the production? That's what you called him. We've, that's one of our jokes. It is, we I know. Well, the toe. reason being because when we were watching the late night... The Other Side of Midnight. The Other Side of Midnight, and the production crew were clearly having, were drunk or having a laugh or something. And, every, and it started off with Anthony H. Wilson, yeah. then it came up again, it was Tony Wilson. Then it was Tony. Yeah. And then it, it was, was toe. toe. And like we were watching it live <laughs> thinking, what is going on? I think yeah. we'd had too many bits Stella Artois that night, personally. But, um, but that, that, so that film, 24 Hour Party yeah. People, I, I love it, it's great. But it's what Steve Morris from New Order calls carry-on factory records. <laughs> 
you know, it's have you. And that, some of the quotes in that film, I've got to know, I sound like it's a ridiculous name dropper, but Frank Cottrell Boyce, who was a screenwriter on that, I've got to know him. And I asked him, so straight up, Tony Wilson never said, this is Manchester, we do things differently here. He says, no, of course he didn't. That's a ridiculous thing. The real Tony would never have said that. He would never have quoted Fitzgerald. He would have quoted the Frankfurt School or Jürgen Habermas. But that was too weird to put in a film. <laughs> so basically, the character in the film, 24-Hour Party People, is a mashup of Tony and Alan Partridge, mm. played by Steve Coogan. But people still stick it up in receptions and on the sides of well, buildings. It, and, that's, it, and, it's, and, and, on, and on the election manifestos, Mr it's Burnham. everywhere. But it was so funny because this morning I was interviewing Sasha Lord for an event and he was telling us and they rebuilt Hacienda like brick for brick kind of thing. And he was saying that they had a load of extras in the queue outside, supposedly outside the Hacienda. And he said they had to do the take of Steve Coogan, a.k.a. Tony Wilson, going to the front of the queue about a dozen times because some idiot in the queue kept going as soon as he saw Steve Coogan. Aha! (laughs) (laughs) Which is a brilliant story. (laughs) Oh, in it, in it. You've witnessed the change, as we all have, but you've documented that of the shift from having the seat of power, the benign dictatorship, as it's been referred to, with Sir Richard Lees and Sir Howard. Yeah. And that's transitioned now into what I think is a fantastic team of women, actually, with Bev Craig as leader, Joe Roney, and Becca Heron, uh, head of regeneration. So, you know, what's your take on that? Was that needed or...? Yeah, I I think of Manchester much more... In its broadest sense, I'm really, really pleased. And it was a central part of my academic thesis, which probably nobody's read. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. No. I'll be honest with you. No, I, anyway, but my point about that is is the accession of the idea of Greater Manchester. Yeah, yeah? Course, yeah. When we think about London, we don't just think about the city and Westminster. We, You know, you think of Camden and Hackney and, you know, even down to Croydon. I think we're getting towards where we think of Manchester as the whole of the borough. And I think Andy Burnham recognises that, that he has to have his reach as the mayor. He has to extend his networks. He has to do his question times and his regular events. And the BBC have helped with that, with their, um, you know, with Greater Manchester Radio or Radio Manchester, whatever it is. You know, that their footprint covers the whole of GM as we know it. There's a planning framework for it, which Stockport isn't a part of. But you know, I think of I think of the you know the leaders in Stockport and Tameside, and where I've worked as well, all playing their part yeah, in in so. in the kind of wider definition of Manchester. I think having a very visible livery on all of our public transport will make a big difference and a contribution to that because you know you land you land in Palmer's Green in the top end of Edmonton or wherever it is in North London, and you see a red bus, so you think you're in London because you are. And I think we'll have a little bit more of that. I think Bolton and Oldham and bits of um, uh, bits of Berry will always have their sense that they're Berry, and and quite rightly too. But it is a constellation of towns that make yeah. up a, a greater city region mm. that that can project itself globally. You're obviously incredibly creative person you've had podcasts for 12 months now i always remember reading your blog marvelly <laughs> the, the you, pun you, you i know the pun. i mean i know i got it it went in we have loads of dyslexic canadian <laughs> readers yeah. 
<laughs> and you've just hung your boots up on a radio show, haven't you? I know. I know. N- Neil Summers is the, the the most amazing guy. He's, he's really influenced me. He's such a cultural go-to. He just knows everyone, knows everything. We get on so well. It's been such a rich friendship that we've developed over the last three years. And he's introduced me to his mates from Blossoms. Oh, well, yeah. there you go then. Yeah, there's a reason why. Because you're a big music fan, aren't you? Yes. So Yeah, so we did music therapy on Tameside Radio for three years. So, you know, two hours of music every Sunday night. And it's a big, big void in my life now. How did you feel when you just kind of decided, well, and you didn't, we have, didn't the have the show the next week? Oh. We didn't have the time in the capacity. Yeah. You know, the week I've just had, yeah. you know, Neil equally, he, you know, we were looking ahead at, we were going to have to be phoning in the show. And we don't want to do that. Mm. It's not fair on the listeners. It's not fair on the station. And again, we just need to give ourselves time and we will bounce back and we'll do something together again. Yeah, I bet you will. Quick fire round. Right. Two Greater Manchester headline makers. Well, I think the mayor inevitably is one at the moment. It's no secret I've got an ambition one day to write write a biography of the King of the North. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I want to spin my academic thesis into something that people will actually read and interpret. <laughs> I've told him, I've told him I'm going to do it, you know, and every time he sees me at stuff, he's thinking, <laughs> he oh, what's he writing down? You know, I went to Ross McRae's leaving do last week from the GMCA and Andy's, oh God, he's here again. <laughs> you know, and I turn up at meetings at Labour Conference and it, it's all going in, mm. you know, I'll do that one day. But I think, you know, amazing business people as well. Um, I keep finding them all the time. I had uh, I had a coffee this morning with a woman called Nikki Merritt, who runs a business called Cortis, and it's just like stops me in my tracks to think about the things that she's doing with her business. And we've got an event that we're going to be doing, really celebrating the, you know, that world of corporate financiers, which was, as you know, so painfully such a you know a horrendously macho environment. But we're changing it. That's great. You know, we awarded yeah. Nikki with a Changemaker Award, and and I think she she and Beth Houghton at Palatine, mm, yeah. you know, they represent something really different about the kind of investment decisions they're making for the good of the city and the and the wider north. And we want to be really at the centre of that. Three most interesting or unusual people you've interviewed. Interesting and unusual. And or interesting or unusual. Uh, Frank Abagnale, mm. you know, fraudster who had a film made of his life. Um, I mean, I'm going to repeat myself, Cass Pennant. <laughs> you know, how many people have interviewed gangsters like Cass? Mm. Yeah. Uh, what do you order at the chippy? Fish, chips, peas, uh, lots of salt and vinegar. <laughs> That's a ritual in our household. <laughs> we get the kids back every Friday, oh, chippy tea. I know we've, this. We've even, yes, we've even got a WhatsApp group called Chippy Tea Crew. <laughs> and we, we get them all back. Yeah. <laughs> Goit chippy in marple. It's Is just, that the one? Oh, it's just brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Greater Manchester's greatest business expo. That's also a good one. Well, I think you look around at the moment at JD Sports, right? It's an example, yeah? It's probably not the best one that I could come up with, but it's the only one I'm going to come up with. Um, They bought a business that I liked called Oipoloi, which has now closed down. Another moment to cry. Um, But JD is now, you know, it's going to have a billion pounds worth of profit. You can't turn your nose up at that. And what are they doing? They're selling athletic wear. Yeah? Incredible story. It's got a new, you know, multinational management now. It's run by a Frenchman who lives in the United Arab Emirates. It's, but it's still headquartered in Bury. It's still JD, which is John and Dave from, from Mosley, who launched a, a shop selling trainers. But in, in itself, it is a symbol of that whole athletic fashion terrace wear 
that grew up here. That's what Dave Makin and John Wardle were all about when they launched it. I remember, it, and I think it's still the same now because we've just done something with young people and they had a, that, then the goodie bags stuff was all in a JD bag because even now, as it was when our sons were at school, all the lads, they wanted to have that jet breaking the fourth wall. Can we do that again? Alex is in the room. Um, but they all wanted the JD bag over the shoulder yeah, for school, yeah, didn't they? they didn't, you know. Yeah, so you're right, yeah. it's, in, it's an incredible brand. Can you give us a headline for Greater Manchester in 2023? A challenging year, but with much more to do. Oh, I love it. I just want to touch on legacy. You've obviously covered the legacies of so many people and some have been great and some have been not so good, but what do you want your legacy to be? What impact do you want to leave on Greater Manchester? I'd like to think I've been honest, loyal and kind. Lovely. Thank you, Michael. And for you telling the stories of so many people who've helped to build the city and in doing that, you know, you've really been part of it and it's been great to know you over the past 23 years. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Michael built this city by creating relationships that lift him up, by keeping storytelling at his heart and by keeping journalism at his core. We Built the City returns in the new year with a special edition where we're going to be looking back on 2023 and having a look at all the amazing stuff that's going to come up for us Mancunians in 2024. In the meantime, I hope you have a fantastic Christmas with your family and loved ones and we'll see you in January. This podcast was produced by Purposeful Podcasts. If you want to build a community around your business or your brand, please do get in touch with our amazing team through our website, purposefulpodcast.com. If you'd like to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or X at rdprtweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 27 years on 0161 236 1122. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.